People told themselves their past with stories, explained their present with stories, foretold the future with stories. The best place by the fire was kept for the storyteller. The Adoration of the Magi As seen by the mystic, venerable Mary of Agreda from the mystical city of God, book four, chapter six. The three Magi kings who came to find the divine infant after his birth were natives of Persia, Arabia, and Saba, countries to the east of Palestine. Their coming was prophesied especially by David and before him by Balaam, who, having been hired by Balak, king of the Moabites, to curse the Israelites, blessed them instead. In this blessing, Balaam said that he would see the King Christ, although not at once, and that he would behold him, although not present. For he did not see him with his own eyes, but through the Magi, his descendants, many centuries after. He said also that a star would arise unto Jacob, which was Christ, who arose to reign forever in the house of Jacob. At the same time, the holy angel, who had brought the news from Bethlehem to the kings, formed of the material air a most resplendent star, although not so large as those of the firmament, for it was not to ascend higher than was necessary for the purpose of its formation. It took its course through the atmospheric regions in order to guide and direct the holy kings to the cave, where the child awaited them. Its splendor was of a different kind from that of the sun and the other stars. With its most beautiful light, it illuminated the night like a brilliant torch, and it mingled its own most active brilliancy with that of the sun by day. On coming out of their palaces, each one of the kings saw this new star, although each from a different standpoint, because it was only one star, and it was placed in such distance and height that it could be seen by each one at the same time. As the three of them followed the guidance of this miraculous star, they soon met. Thereupon it immediately approached them much more closely, descending through many shifts of the aerial space, and rejoicing them by shedding its refulgence over them at a closer range. They began to confer among themselves about the revelation they had received and about their plans, finding that they were identical. They were more and more inflamed with devotion and with the pious desire of adoring the newborn God and broke out in praise and admiration at the inscrutable works and mysteries of the Almighty. The Heavenly Mother awaited the pious and devout kings, standing with the child in her arms. Amid the humble and poor surroundings of the cave, in incomparable modesty and beauty, she exhibited at the same time a majesty more than human, the light of heaven shining in her countenance. Still more visible was this light in the child, shedding through the cavern a fulgent splendor, which made it like a heaven. The three kings of the east entered, and at the first sight of the son and mother, they were for a considerable space of time overwhelmed with wonder. They prostrated themselves upon the earth 
and in this position they worshipped and adored the infant, acknowledging him as the true God and man, and as the Savior of the human race. By the divine power, which the sight of him and his presence exerted in their souls, they were filled with new enlightenment. They perceived the multitude of angelic spirits, who as servants and ministers of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, attended upon him in reverential fear. Arising, they congratulated their and our Queen as Mother and the Son of the Eternal Father, and they approached to reverence her on their knees. They sought her hand in order to kiss it, as they were accustomed to do to their queens in their countries. But the most prudent lady withdrew her hand and offered instead that of the Redeemer of the world, saying, My spirit rejoices in the Lord, and my soul blesses and extols him, because among all the nations he has called and selected you to look upon and behold that which many kings and prophets have in vain desired to see, namely, him who is the eternal word incarnate. Let us extol and praise his name on account of the sacraments and mysteries wrought among his people, and let us kiss the earth which he sanctifies by his real presence. At these words of the Most Holy Mary, the three kings humiliated themselves anew, adoring the infant Jesus. They acknowledged the great blessings of living in the time when the Son of Justice was arising in order to illuminate the darkness. Thereupon they spoke to St. Joseph, congratulating him and extolling his good fortune and being chosen as the spouse of the Mother of God. And they expressed wonder and compassion at the great poverty, beneath which were hidden the great mysteries of heaven and earth. Thereupon the three kings consumed three hours, and then the kings asked permission of Most Holy Mary to go to the city in order to seek a lodging, as they could find no room for themselves in the cave. Some people had accompanied them, but the Magi alone participated in the light and the grace of this visit. The others took notice merely of what passed exteriorly, and witnessed only the destitute and neglected condition of the mother and her husband. Though wondering at the strange event, they perceived nothing of its mystery. The Magi took leave and departed, while Most Holy Mary and Joseph, being again alone with their child, glorified His Majesty with new songs of praise, because His name was beginning to be known and adored among the Gentiles. What else the three wise men did will be related in the following chapter. From the Grotto of the Nativity, into which the three kings had entered directly on their way to Jerusalem, they betook themselves to a lodging inside of the town of Bethlehem. They retired to a room where, in an abundance of affectionate tears and aspirations, they spent the greater part of the night speaking of what they had seen, of the feelings and affections aroused in each, and of what each had noticed for himself in the divine child and his mother. During this conference, they were more and more inflamed with divine love, amazed at the majesty and divine effulgence of the infant Jesus, at the prudence, modesty, and reserve of his mother, at the holiness of her spouse Joseph, and the poverty of all three, at the humbleness of the place where the Lord of heaven and earth had wished to be born. The devout kings felt a divine fire, which flamed up in their hearts, and, not being able to restrain themselves, they broke out into exclamations of sweet affection and acts of great reverence and love. What is this that we feel? 
they said. What influence of this great king is it that moves us to such desires and affections? After this, how shall we converse with men? What can we do who have been instructed in such new, hidden, and supernatural mysteries? O greatness of his omnipotence unknown to men, and concealed beneath so much poverty! O humility unimaginable for mortals! Would that all be drawn to it, in order that they may not be deprived of such happiness. During these divine colloquies, the Magi remembered the dire destitution of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in their cave, and they resolved immediately to send them some gifts in order to show their affection and to satisfy their desire of serving them, since they could not do anything else for them. They sent through their servants many of the presents which they had already set aside for them, and others which they could procure. Most Holy Mary and Joseph received these gifts with humble acknowledgement, and they made a return not of empty-worded thanks, as other men are apt to make, but many efficacious blessings for the spiritual consolations of the three kings. These gifts enabled our great queen to prepare for her ordinary guests, the poor, an abundant repast, for the needy ones were accustomed to receive alms from her, and, attracted still more by her sweet words, were wont to come and visit her. The kings went to rest, full of incomparable joy in the Lord, and in their sleep the angels advised them as to their journey homeward. On the following day at dawn, they returned to the cave of the Nativity, in order to offer to the heavenly king the special gifts which they had provided. Arriving, they prostrated themselves anew in profound humility, and opening their treasures, as scripture relates, they offered him gold, incense, and myrrh. They consulted the Heavenly Mother in regard to many mysteries and practices of faith, and concerning matters pertaining to their consciences and to the government of their countries, for they wished to return well instructed and capable of directing themselves to holiness and perfection in their daily life. The Great Lady heard them with exceeding pleasure, and she conferred interiorly with the divine infant concerning all that they had asked, in order to answer and properly to instruct these sons of the new law. As a teacher and an instrument of divine wisdom, she answered all their questions, giving them such high precepts of sanctity that they could scarcely part from her on account of the sweetness and attraction of her words. However, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, reminding them of the necessity and of the will of the Lord that they should return to their country. No wonder that her words should so deeply affect these kings, for all her words were inspired by the Holy Spirit and full of infused science regarding all that they had inquired and many other matters. The Heavenly Mother received the gifts of the kings and in their name offered them to the infant Jesus. His Majesty showed by signs of highest pleasure that he accepted their gifts. They themselves became aware of the exalted and heavenly blessings with which he repaid them more than a hundredfold. According to the custom of their country, they also offered to the heavenly princess some gems of great value. But because these gifts had no mysterious signification and referred not to Jesus, she returned them to the kings, reserving only the gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. In order to send them away more rejoiced, she gave them some of the clothes in which she had wrapped the infant God, for she neither had 
nor could have had any greater visible pledges of esteem with which to enrich them at their departure. The three kings received these relics with such reverence and esteem that they encased them in gold and precious stones in order to keep them ever after. As a proof of their value, these relics spread about such a copious fragrance that they revealed their presence a league in circumference. However, only those who believed in the coming of God into the world were able to perceive it, while the incredulous perceived none of the fragrance emitted by the relics. In their own countries, the Magi performed great miracles with these relics. The holy kings also offered their property and possession to the mother of the sweetest Jesus, or, if she did not wish to accept of them and preferred to live in this place, where her most holy son had been born, they would build her a house wherein she could live more comfortably. The most prudent mother thanked them for their offers without accepting them. On taking leave of her, the three kings besought her from their inmost hearts not to forget them, which she promised and fulfilled in the same way they asked of St. Joseph. With the blessing of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they departed, so moved by tenderest affection that it seemed to them they had left their hearts all melted in sighs and tears in that place. They chose another way for their return journey, in order not to meet Herod in Jerusalem, for thus they had been instructed by the angel on the preceding night. On their departure from Bethlehem, the same or a similar star appeared in order to guide them home, conducting them on their new route to the place where they had first met, whence each one separated to reach his own country. And now the words of Our Lady to Sister Mary of Agreda. My daughter, great were the gifts which the kings offered to my most holy son, but greater still was the affection with which they offered them and the mystery concealed beneath them. On account of all this, they were most acceptable to his majesty. I wish that thou also offered up similar gifts, thanking him for having made thee poor in condition and profession. For I assure thee, my dearest, there is no more acceptable gift to the Most High than voluntary poverty. There are very few in the world in our days who use well the temporal riches and offer them to their God and Lord with the generosity and love of these holy kings. The poor of the Lord, so numerous in our day, experience and give witness how cruel and avaricious human nature has become, since in their great necessities they are so little succored by the rich. This gross uncharitableness of men offends the holy angels and grieves the Holy Ghost, since they are bound to witness the nobility of the souls so degraded and abased in the service of vile greed of gold, with all its evil powers. As if all things have been created for the individual use of the rich, they appropriate them to themselves and deprive the poor, their brothers springing from the same nature and flesh, and denying them even to God who created and preserves all things, and who can, can give and take at will. It is most lamentable that while the rich might purchase eternal life with their possessions, they abuse them to draw upon themselves damnation as senseless and foolish creatures. This evil is common among the children of Adam, and therefore voluntary poverty is so excellent and safe a remedy. By it, 
making man willing to part joyfully with his possessions for the sake of the poor. A great sacrifice is offered to the Lord. Thou also canst make such an offering of the things necessary for sustenance, giving a part of it to the poor and desiring, if it were possible by thy labor and sweat, to help all of them. Thy ceaseless offer, however, must be love, which is the gold. Continual prayer, which is the incense. And the patient acceptance of labors and true mortifications, which is the myrrh. All that thou dost for the Lord, thou should offer up to him with fervent affection and promptitude, without negligence or fear. For negligent works and those not enlivened by love are not an acceptable sacrifice in the eyes of his majesty. In order to make those incessant offerings, it is necessary that divine faith and light continually inflame thy heart, having before thy eyes the great object of thy praise and exaltation, and the stimulus of love, by which thou art bound to the right hand of the Most High. Thus, should thou continue incessantly in this sweet exercise of love, so proper to the spouses of his majesty, for their name implies such a continual payment of debt of love and affection. Oh, <laughs>